to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, gold and commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit rationalmf.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left brain robots, right brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. All right. Welcome. Pitter patter. Let's get at her. How are we doing? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Good to see you guys. Welcome to Resolve Riffs. And uh, before we get started, Mike, maybe hit us with that oh, yeah, disclaimer. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me think here. Don't take investment advice from three dudes on YouTube on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty clear. In, in all seriousness, we're going to have a, a great discussion on investing, rubber meeting the road, how it impacts portfolios and asset owners and how they might want to think about the challenges and the opportunities that face them. But none of this is investment advice. Obviously, you'd have to check this with your own personal situation. And um, yeah, so that frees us to have a little bit more of a conversation. It's a little wider and, and encompasses maybe a, a few more topics and tales and um, maybe give you more insight. But it's education and entertainment. So let's make sure we're entertaining at least. At the very least, well, with Brad, I think we're uh, we're, we're guaranteed for for at least oh, some fine. of that. And I don't know about you and me, Mike, oh, yeah. but uh, Brad, why did oh, you? We got, we got the BB uh, gun here. He's going to shoot wisdom at us. Ah, uh, BB gun—that's yeah. a new nickname. <laughs> <laughs> so, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, Brad, and how you got to where you are today? I think that's a good place for us to, to start, Absolutely. and 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 maybe get, hit us with a little bit of the more. Uh, salient points of your trajectory in the financial uh, industry and, and how that has shaped and formed your views? Yeah. So um, 
So I've been in financial services for about 25 years. Uh, right out of college, I was uh, lucky enough to uh, um, be hired as a financial advisor. Um, I, I had a job, two job offers, actually, ironically, of one being a statistician, because I have a degree in mathematics and economics and other job of, of, of being a financial advisor. And uh, I'm very grateful that I, I chose the job of a financial advisor because it's really been uh, a passion and a love of mine. I actually went to college to be a high school math teacher originally because I love educating. I love helping people learn and, and bettering themselves. And I realized the job of a financial advisor kind of allowed me to educate clients, help them and better themselves from a financial standpoint and, and uh, hopefully help them get A pluses in the, in the class of retirement, so to speak. So uh, um, so I was a practicing advisor for 20 years. I was also a, a compliance officer. So I, I greatly appreciate the uh, disclaimers uh, that, that are out there uh, that, that you guys did. And I was a training manager. I had many roles um, uh, in, in my firm. I was a top, one of the top financial advisors. And uh, about five years ago, I, I transitioned my practice to my partners. Uh, I, it's, it's, I was a financial advisor again for 20 years right out of college. It's all I'd ever done. And for personal reasons, I wanted to explore other avenues, uh, transition my practice to, to my partners. They've done a phenomenal job with it and um, took a little bit of time off, but then kept my foot in the business and began consulting and helping other financial advisors um, that I knew at, at a variety of firms and helping them on various topics from business structure to planning to insurance strategies to um, investment guidance. And I would say this year, especially, uh, I pivoted my business, my consulting firm, uh, hired four other individuals to help me um, because the, the getting a lot of knocks on my door on, on, hey, Brad, what do you know about asset allocation? Hey, Brad, you know, our, our, our investments are having some issues. Hey, Brad, what do you know about alternatives? And I, the answer was a lot. Um, and, and as I talked to more and more advisors and learned about what they're doing, and it is very different than what, what I had done as a financial advisor. I had always embraced different uniqueness. Um, you know, I was never one that thought uh, by the traditional 60-40 and, and call it a day. Um, it's actually funny when I, when I started as a financial advisor, um, right out of college, you know, again, a degree in math and econ, but I didn't know anything much, you know, about investing, you know, again, had excellent mentors and teachers and, um, you know, did good, uh, good work for folks, but I was taught pick funds, pick strategies that had what's called a high R squared. And you guys know what high R squared is. You know, and, and there was a term back in the day called style drift. Remember, and you don't hear that term as much anymore, right. but, but style drift was a bad thing. Like, don't buy funds that have style drift, you know, red flags, stay away. And I thought to myself, well, geez, I mean, I'm some kid out of college. How do I know whether large cap growth is better than large cap value is better than bonds, right? It's, it shouldn't the portfolio manager who's more experienced and smarter than me be able to make those decisions. And, and as you know, you know, funds can only do what the prospectus allows them to do. And um, that's something that I educated my clients on a lot around, 
you know, we can maybe get into that. Um, but well, uh, it's funny. We wrote a piece on that uh, sort of in the same vein, which was, you know, emerging markets versus U.S. equities. And the 99th percentile, the worst performing U.S. equity fund outperformed the best performing EM manager by like 15%. You simply can't create, you know, the asset class selection provides for a certain opportunity set and you can't create, you know, U.S. equity returns trying to invest in emerging markets, no matter how good you are. It's sort of like planting wheat and expecting to get corn. That's just not a thing that works. So back to you. Yeah, yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. I mean it's 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 almost as basic as expectations, right? It's mm-hmm. it's what do you expect from the fund? And it's it's funny many a many a time I would talk to a financial advisor or more so with individual, you know, retail investors and clients on, you know, boy this fund really stinks. You know, this fund went down 20% this year. You know, what's wrong with this guy? You know, what's wrong with this manager? And fire them. And I would say, well, let's look at that fund. It's a five-star fund. You know, the managers won awards and I said, actually, you know, what did it do last year? Okay, it lost 20% last year that, you know, you're not happy with that. I said, well, what if I told you that that portfolio manager was paid a big six figure bonus last year? My client would be like, Brad, what are you talking about? He was paid six figures to lose me 20%. And I would say, no, 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 no. He was paid a six figure bonus on top of his six figure salary to lose you 20%. And the reason he was paid a bonus was because the the benchmark, if it's EM, the EM benchmark was down 22% and he was only down 20%. So relative to the benchmark, he outperformed exponentially. And that that would get into a conversation with the client around prospectus and the mandates and the prospectus. And I'm one of those people that actually reads prospectuses. Um, It's kind of funny even in, amongst financial advisors. I'm not sure if everybody reads those things. I don't read them all cover to cover, but um, you know, if you have trouble sleeping, they're always, always a good thing to read. But uh, we would get into what the prospectus allows the, 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 the portfolio to do. And we'd also get into a conversation on relative return versus absolute return. Right. And yeah. you know, what, what, what do you want? Do you, do you want, relative return. And it's funny, clients want relative return when the market goes up 30%, right? We all want to make 30% when the market rallies, but when the market goes down 30%, well, then we want our absolute return strategies, which, you know, again, are not guaranteed to get us absolute returns every year, right? It's just, it's a different mandate. It's a different flexibility. And when I manage money for the last 25 years, including five years just for myself and and advising advisors, but even when I manage money for clients, we specifically looked for funds that had flexibility, right? Um, you guys didn't, ex- didn't exist 20 years ago, 15 years ago when I was in practice. And, and even the number of funds that could be categorized as tactical or alternative or, or what have you was very hard to find, um, you know, back, back then. And, you know, alternatives meant real estate. Alternatives meant gold yeah. and silver and... It's, it's funny, as I talk to advisors now and, 
in, in some of our allocations, we call for 30% alternatives and they'll be shocked and they'll say, we can't put 30% alternatives. Oh, that's a great one to dig into as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, you if have there's to put one thing we hear over and over, what's the allocation? And I'm like, well, let me talk to your compliance department. It's not, it's not us that can determine the allocation. It's how have you educated your compliance department? and those around your firm who are supervising in order to, for them to understand the different nature of non-correlated sources of return and how they can enhance risk versus DOL and lowest fee and beta access. And there, there's a real sort of uh, tension there. And the tension over the last decade has not had the backing of any kind of, um, return give up, right? So it's just paid to be 60-40, ignore, buy and hold, buy as much as you can, hold as much as you can of those typical assets. And there's, you know, whether it's a central bank put or whatever, it's just worked out to be really, really good. But, you know, December 31st, 2021 came. And I just use that date for fun. I mean, it's sure. somewhere in there. But the regime shifted and relationships have changed. And, and so now- and- yeah, and it's funny. Like, when, so when I talk about alternatives, I, I joke that I say we look at the alternative to alternatives, right? Because again, alternatives don't mean gold and silver to me. They mean right. you know strategies like yours, you know, long short trend following, you know, multi asset strategies, loss mitigation strategies, market neutral bond alternative strategies, which have knocked the knocked whatever out of the park uh, this year relative to the bond market, right? And um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. We, when I talk to advisors, I talk to them about the future, right? And everybody wants to know, okay, what's, what, what's, what's Jerome Powell going to do? Right. And, and it's funny. It's, it's like, you know, I know Jerome Powell, right. And, you know, he's personally, a smart guy. I call him every week um, for <laughs> guidance awesome. to discuss the market. But but he's actually never answered the phone. So uh, and I've never gotten through his. Uh, oh, you got me. Oh, I got you. I got you. No, I, I do not know Jerome Powell. So um, he's that such was a, a joke. Good straight Hopefully, man, Richard. You no can't fun, blame me. But, yeah, he was kind of grinning, Mike. I think he was letting he he, he was letting on a, a little, a little uh, bit. Yeah, yeah even though I'm, I'm in the Vegas area, I don't play poker, so I don't have a good poker face. So, uh, um, but people will say, "What's Jerome Powell going to do? What's what's your target for the S and P 500 year end?" And it's like. I have no idea. You know, it, it's, it's, I'm not in the business of predicting the future. I'm in the business of preparing for the future, regardless of what happens. And, and that's a big thing that, that, that we focus on is don't try to predict the future, prepare for the future, regardless of what happens. You know, it's, it's, it's funny, actually, I'll, um, if Ani can share my screen real quick, I want to show you um, something. So this is, this is complete sense, right? I mean, this is like analysis paralysis. You may have seen graphs like this before, and I, I put this up there again for some humor. But it, it's it's trying to predict the market is 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 I don't want to say a fool's game, but it can be analysis paralysis. And then when you look at um, wrong one. when you look at what impacts the market. You know, you have all these questions, right? What's inflation going to be? Interest rates, taxes, you know, what about North Korea, COVID, Ukraine war, housing market? Is it time to buy? Is it time to sell? There's so many questions 
I mean, there's literally a millions of variables that impact the market on a day-to-day basis. The weather is good. The weather is bad, right? That, that impacts the, 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 the market. The, your team loses in the World Cup, right? Or, 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 or playoff, right? Sorry, Richard. Let's, but let's not go there quite just okay. yet. But for, okay. for, for those just listening, this is actually a chart of the Dow Jones over the last uh, couple uh, couple of months, or uh, I don't know if this is even 2022. And then there are all sorts of technical analyses drawn on the chart and uh, different question marks of whether this is a good time to buy, a good time to sell, whether this is an inflationary uh, a spike or a recession fear, COVID and so on and so forth. So this is uh, in the uh, industry, the jargon I think is dog's breakfast is, is the term yeah. for, for what this chart looks like. It's a Are you kidding me? This things. is chart magic. I know exactly is, what to do now. Yeah. <laughs> but but Brad, before we jump in too far into your current process, I'm very curious because you you started off investing and, and, and embracing a investment philosophy that is away from the traditional 60-40 way before it started to come into vogue. So I, I'm wondering... Why is that? Why did you embrace that? What were some of the formative years of your time in the market that kind of nudged you in that direction? And what were you doing before you had the uh, the access and availability of, of more alternative funds like we have today? How were you addressing your your, your need to try and and get truly uncorrelated return streams for your portfolios? Yeah, so so I I started as a financial advisor right out of college in um, nineteen ninety eight. So if you, if you go back to 1998 with the market was raging bull market, right? And, and, and I would call prospects, I would call potential clients and I would hear things like, you know, Brad, my, 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 you know, Janus 20 fund, sorry to throw out an individual name, but my Janus 20 fund is, is giving me 20% a year. Can you do better than that? And I thought to myself, I wonder if this person realizes it's not called Janus 20 because it does 20% a year. And I wonder if they realize that it's not always going to do 20% a year and they can't, they can't promise that. And, and again, nothing against Janus or a good fund family, um, good firm, but, but that was the nineties. That was the late nineties, right? It's, Some clever it was, marketing naming too. I'm, I think write that down, Richard result 15. <laughs> Already did. Already <laughs> 15. There you go. <laughs> What's a 15 mean? It's not, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, fifty percent a year, maybe. I don't know. Well, and, and for their fund, it was like concentrated twenty holdings. Yeah, That's twenty really holdings. I know the twenty fund. holdings. It was concentrated growth, and I'm and telling you, Brad, so- I'm I'm hitting like the, I was in the business then. The other thing that astonished me was the number of new entrants that were trying to come into the business to advise clients who did not survive because they could not provide a meaningful amount of advice that would sway a person away from that hypnotized Janus 20, you know, um, highly concentrated tech, hyper growth stock, 98, 99, 2000. I think the number of of financial advisors that actually survived that gauntlet was vanishingly small. Mm -hmm. They couldn't grow a business. Yeah. I saw a lot of folks come and go and, and I was I was lucky enough to be at a firm that did financial planning as its core. I, we, we were not stockbrokers, right. you know. We were not insurance salespeople. We were actually financial planners. We charged fees for financial planning. We did analysis. I would always explain to to a client that um, uh, uh, I would say diagnosis or, or, or 
Um, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice, right? You don't go to the doctor and say, give me a prescription. The doctor says, well, hold, hold on. I got to, we got to do an exam, right? We got to run some tests. We got to know what's the right thing. No, no, I want, I want the pill. I want, I want this prescription. And in financial services, many ways that happens. People come in and like, oh, I want to invest. I want to invest. I want to give you money. And you have to take a step back and say, well, invest for what? You know, what's your risk tolerance? What's your time frame? What's your taxes? What's your estate planning? What's your cash flow? Like you don't want to invest if you have high interest debt. You don't want to invest for long term if you got to be paying for college in the next year and you didn't save anything, right? It's it's like do the 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 examination first. I would always use an analogy of an X-ray, right? It's it's I would say, you know, if your elbow doesn't feel good, the doctor does an X-ray to kind of do an in-depth look at what's working, what's not working, how do we fix what's broken? And if it's not broken, let's not mess with it, right? So that financial x-ray would be the financial plan. And and every client we took on did a financial plan to some degree or another. And again, I lost potential clients because they didn't want to do the plan. They wanted their high-tech growth and mutual fund company after mutual fund company, I would always remember, it's like, oh, we're launching a tech fund. You know, oh, we're launching a tech fund and it's every firm was launching a new tech fund and it just didn't seem right to me. And I never bought into those tech funds. Um, you know, we, we tried to have a balance between the growth and the value, but even finding value in the late 90s was was hard. You know, a, a, it's funny, a balanced fund back in the late 90s was five growth funds, you know. Um, and- I actually think it was, to be fair, it was actually reasonable to find value. Um, it just wasn't rewarded, right? There was actually quite a good value market, but the hypnosis on the high growth led to just the marginal investors selling value stocks and relentlessly chasing NASDAQ and high growth S&P stocks. The S&P incorporated AOL into the index. I mean, the S&P is not a systematic index. It's an index by committee. And so mistakes were sort of made, if you will. Um, but it's a really interesting point. Like it, there was value. You just didn't get paid for it at all. Exactly. And exactly. And and when it comes to recommending portfolios, you know, it's it's funny. There's there's the, in every prospectus and every disclosure, there's the, there's the line past performance is no indication of future results. Right. We've all said it and heard it. But what's the number one thing investors ask? What's the number one thing financial advisors ask? How's it done? What's the performance? And to try to try to sell value to a client in the late '90s, you know, Brad, why do I want this fund? It's it's averaged three percent when this thing's done twenty percent. Why do I want you know these boring industrial yeah. companies and healthcare companies and you know? So one thing that I always tried to find with funds was funds that were multi multi asset. They were balanced funds. They were flexible funds. They were global all allocation funds, right? And yeah, the, the tactical and multi-asset like your funds didn't exist 25 years ago as much, especially in the retail space. But there were global allocation funds, uh, world balanced funds that that did that to some degree. So it would, I don't say hide, but it would kind of hide the value in there with the growth if it's a good manager. And mm-hmm. the the some of the parts were in there versus each of the individual ingredients kind of being shown. Um, uh, from a from a performance standpoint, right? So, 
It's a really interesting point too, from the standpoint of if we go back to that period, sort of late nineties, early two thousands, this is, everyone has to remember, this is prior to the invention and broad adoption of ETFs. So if you wanted to take a 60, 40 portfolio and you were going to, you know, you were conservative, so you were going to weight it 42, 58. You, and, and that was a big sort of benchmark shift, but you couldn't just take two securities and sell 2% of your bonds and buy 2% of an index fund. You actually had to go through your portfolio of individual stocks and bonds, find the 2% across the board that you want to sell across 50 or 60 securities, and then reallocate it over on the other side across 50, 60 securities at commission rates and slippage rates that are far, far in excess of what they are today for investors to think about being more tactical in their portfolios. You can do that with, you know, if you have a 60-40 or, or whatever, a couple asset portfolio, that's very easy to do today. Mm-hmm. And the alternatives and the proliferation of alternatives have added the opportunity to provide much more easy access the challenge is much more easy access also allows for a lot of flip-flopping and performance chasing in the short term, which is a real challenge to ETFs. As much good as they've caused, boy, oh boy, have they created excess turnover as well at, at the same time. So there's always a yin and a yang, if you will. But I'll, I'll, I'll punt it yeah. back to you because it, it like that late nineties period I'm, I'm quite familiar with. And it, you know, there, there's been quite some, dramatic shifts in what we can do now. Oh, um, yeah, I think most investors, investors don't appreciate the amount of friction there used to be in the markets oh. a couple of decades away. I think a lot of investors that have come of age in the post-GFC world of index solutions and, and low-cost beta and all that don't really understand how difficult it was. I mean, I, I barely saw that in the very beginning of my career, but and I was still back in Brazil, so it, it, it was a different landscape altogether. But so, sorry, Brad, continue. Yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the 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 evolution in the financial services industry is is done amazing growth in the last 25 years. It's 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 kind of crazy with the products and the proliferation of products, and and now with alts being being more wide wide you know, not being a dirty word as much, um, you know, per, per se. And, and again, alts meaning different things, you know, in, in, in different ways. Right. So, so I, I had always used or tried to find more flexible, uh, funds and strategies and use balance funds and world funds and, you know, to have funds where the manager could decide, you know, oh, yeah, we like, we like international more than us. So a world fund allows you to do that. And it's funny because back then when we would run an asset allocation analysis, the asset allocation analysis would never call for world funds. It would never call for balance funds. It would say 12% international, 5% EM, right? And, and X percentage in US and so forth and so on. And it would be a static allocation. Um, and again, and just I just stocks thought, and bonds, right? The, oh, stocks and, stocks and bonds. Maybe, maybe a little gold, but not really. Um, and yeah, it, it's very few... You know, and the, those products have evolved, right? I mean, long short funds came out. One thirty thirty long short came out. You know, never was really a big fan of 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 those per se. You know, it's it's funny. I I, I look for um, so so I mentioned that 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 past performance is no indication of future results, but it's what we all look at, and it's really what all statistics are based on. And and if we have time, we can kind of get into what type of statistics we look at, but. If statistics, again, are all based on past performance, and if they're not indication of future results, why do we look at them? Well, 
because we do and we have to, right? And and I don't want to say they are an indication of future results because that's not what the disclaimer says. But the other thing we look at, if we can't look at past performance, is logic. Is there a logical approach to this strategy? And as silly as that sounds, I would look at the strategy. I would listen to the portfolio manager uh, and, and say, do they make sense? Are they logical? I remember being at a conference many, many years ago and there was a manager up there doing a presentation, a portfolio manager, might have been a mid-cap growth manager. And someone in the audience said, asked him and said, why do you have XYZ stock uh, in this portfolio? I forget the name, name of the stock, but why do you have this stock in the portfolio? And the manager was like, well, I don't really like that company, but it's it, it has a good holding in the index, so so we have to own it. And I thought to myself, well, geez, this guy's not very smart. I mean, why would you buy something if you don't like it? You know, it, it, I mean, does it pass the logic test? If you don't like it, why would you buy it? And, and obviously that fund is an index hugger, right? And there's hundreds of those types of funds out there that are index huggers because that's what a lot of people look for. Again, we're back to tracking error. Yeah. Back to tracking error. And and they don't want style drift. drift. Style yeah. drift. And, and, Sorry, yeah. I'm tracking errors now. It was style drift same. precisely. Yeah, yeah. My bad. Same yeah, same, same, yeah, same, same definition. So it's it's like we look for logic. I always looked for logic and picked funds and in, in strategies and said, is this logical? And if it didn't wasn't logical, I, I tried to avoid it. You know, and and if there were strategies that followed logic, like market neutral merger strategies to me is very logical and you know they have their ups and downs and downsides but it's very logical as a bond alternative makes a ton of sense and i i'd use those for 25 years as as part of a bond alternative so have you have you thought i mean the, the one thing that's interesting in that is this whole um positive feedback loop in target date funds and indexing and have we gotten to the point where the feedback loop now dominates over, you know, thoughtful investment strategy. I don't like it. So I, I would like to underweight it versus, hey, we've had a decade where index crushes everybody. And by the way, their capital flows are such that the larger you are in the index, just the more money you get and you have, you know, capital advantage over the other companies that you might be competing with if you're in the index versus out of the index. How have you, has any of your thought process there changed or is that, you know, more driven by a bit of a fad and we're going to move back to more active management versus this move to passive? What are your thoughts there? So, so we call our asset allocation approach, um, multidimensional asset allocation, because, because we really take a multidimensional viewpoint. Do passive, we like passive, we like buy and hold, we like 60, 40 for a portion of the asset allocation, right? We break it down to sleeves. So we kind of have three main sleeves, the, the, the passive where we use very low cost passive ETFs to get 60, 40, 50, right. 50. Sor- source the beta, if you will. Source the beta, right? So, so we have our strict buy and hold uh, and a good portion in that. But then we have a sleeve that is tactical where we will pick managers like yourself that will be tactical. Um, I don't necessarily believe the financial advisor should be the one making the tactical decisions. Um, financial advisors have a lot to do. And the the alpha that the financial advisor can create for their client um, is not just investment alpha. Actually, the greater alpha they can do is is in tax strategies, estate strategies, insurance strategies, cash flow, behavioral planning, the behavioral, absolutely. And holding at the worst yeah, possible time, getting the client to stick with. The, the absolutely. And, and the investment methodology can help with that. Right. It's it's 
we don't necessarily want to, uh, we, we, we do this, but we don't just want to help a client through a stressful time. If possible, we want to try to help them avoid the stressful time to begin with, right? If you don't like roller coasters, don't get in the roller coaster line, right? It's, it's that simple. And a lot of clients' portfolios- But it looks like everyone's having so much fun. I know they are until it starts to go down, right? And and what people don't realize is they're in that line for that roller coaster ride. And they really don't realize that. You're so right. They really they don't because they're in they're in the hundred percent buy and hold strategy. So we have buy and hold passive. We have active where they're truly active, where they're tactical active, where maybe they go from large cap to mid cap to bonds to cash to you know again exactly what you guys do: multi asset, long short. Um, and then we do that on, uh, we look for funds that are that way in multi-asset. We look for tactical equity managers and we look for tactical bond managers. There are tactical bond managers that have not, that are not down 15% this year, um, because they are tactical and, and within that tactical sleeve, we do further analysis to again, use logic to say not just past performance, how have they done? But what's their approach? Are they quant? Are they fundamental? Are they using technical analysis? Are they using a combination of the three? Ideally, we try to pair a quant manager with a fundamental manager with a technical analysis manager because you know a fundamental manager is sometimes early to the game, right? And the quant manager can sometimes be late to the game. You know, I always use the uh, the, the Peter Lynch example with Walmart, right? Peter Lynch famously was a very early investor in Walmart. And, and he invested in Walmart because he walked into a Walmart store, I don't know, 20, 30 plus years ago and said, boy, there's a lot of people here and they're buying everything, right? I mean, there's no quant screen that, that Peter Lynch saw. I mean, he literally walked into a Walmart, the old buy what you know type of uh, investment theory, right? He was early to the game. A quant manager back then would not have invested. So having a balance between quant and fundamental and technical yeah, you may get some overlap between them, and that's okay in our in our in our strategy and our idea. Um, but you smooth out the ride, and then the last sleeve we look at is the alternatives. So we have three sleeves: buy and hold, ta- uh, tactical, and alternatives. And the alternatives again are kind of alternatives to alternatives, um, where again your strategy kind of goes between tactical and alternative. Um, but the arbitrage strategies, structured strategies, defined outcome. There's there's a lot of different true alternatives, um, not just alternative assets, but alternative strategies that are in there. Right. And, and it really boils down to, again, having been a financial advisor for 20 years, having managed clients' money, having gotten calls from clients, you know, hey, Brad, how's it going? Oh, it's good. And what's up? Um, the refrigerator blew up. We got to remodel the kitchen. There's bacon and milk everywhere. I'm like, oof. That happened, right? I love and those parties, bacon. And yeah, milk those are fun. <laughs> I wasn't invited. Um, so it's it's so where do we take twenty thousand, thirty thousand from to remodel the kitchen? And if yeah. you're just in stocks and bonds and everything is down, you're having to sell at a loss, right? So by having non-correlated, truly non-correlated assets, the goal of asset allocation is not to get the highest return. The goal is a smoother return, with ideally at least something in the portfolio making money every time frame and can't guarantee it but but that's the goal so that when a client needs to tap into money unexpectedly you have something to tap into that's not at a loss so you're not locking in that loss and you give the portfolio time to kind of 
you know, you've conspicuously not mentioned the private versions of the public stuff that everyone loves. So private equity, private debt, which we oftentimes will, will, will be in debates, whether on the podcast or just with in, in, in the broader conversation that we have about how people seem to think that they are the desirable components of an alternative sleeve. And, and I guess from a, a behavioral standpoint, I, I guess it's been well established that the lack of a frequent mark to market is such a behavioral tailwind that, uh, especially from an institutional standpoint, but it sounds like, or at least you haven't mentioned those yet. Have you largely uh, stayed away from them for your alternative sleeve? Do, do you embrace the, the, the privates at all? What is your approach on that? And, and do you get questions from, from clients regarding your, your embrace or lack thereof? Yeah, we have, I mean, we've gotten some questions on that and it's, it's funny. So I would always tell my clients and I tell the advisors I work with that part of our job, part of my job is to scour the investment universe, right? Looking for new and better investment opportunities. And it's literally what we do day in and day out. So yeah, we, we look at private equity, we look at private debt. And at the end of the day, it's equity. It, you know, it's, it's, it's debt. So the, the long-term correlation between private equity and equity in the short term, you're right, because it's private, it's, it's not marked to market, you know, and I think there could sometimes be a false sense of diversification, right? The, the non-traded uh, REIT market is, is that way, right? Where, where REITs are non, non-traded, so they're non-priced, you know, people look at their house the same way, you know, it's, you know, my house didn't lose money. Well, it probably did, but it's not marked to market. I mean, can you imagine if your mortgage statement came with a mark to market value on your equity in your house? Easy every every month. Be great. I think I you've mean, got some great slides too that I noticed. I think slide 10 starts with that um, in your the presentation you sent us in getting prepped. And I think it's really informative for a nerd like me. So, I mean, I take it that I don't think people sort of internalize that private debt or corporate debt is more a function of economic growth than it is you know, sort of some sort of certainty around inflation. And I thought your slides are a great job of here's your pie chart, by the way, and here's the correlated nature of things. So I don't know if you can pull yeah, that I can, up and maybe I can walk show us that. through and, and that. Yeah. Yeah, I can show that. And it's, it's uh, um, again, we look for logic, you know, we would say, yeah, what, what, what's the risk to private equity versus public equity, you know, global economic recession, right? What's the risk of soybeans relative to Apple stock? Nothing. Right. I mean, what's the different uh, what, market what does one participants? Have to do with another? Yeah. Neither. Right. So 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 here is um, here's a traditional asset allocation, you know, pie graph. Right. And and I would put this type of pie graph in front of my clients many, many times and financial advisors show them all day long. Right. And it, it's funny, you know what a number of clients would would say to me after I show them this? They would say, "Ooh, look at all the pretty colors. Right. And and that's kind of what it's kind of what the industry wants is, is all the pretty colors, which show different sleeves. I'm much, I must be getting a lot of different stuff. And this is, this shows a lot, large cap, mid cap, international, all that stuff. But when you look at the correlation um, between all that stuff, the correlation is extremely high. So the way this is done is large cap is the, is what everything's being judged against. And then I just shade the, the transparency of blue relative to its correlation. So international stocks are 87% correlated, 87% transparent, high yield of 78%. So you're not getting a lot of, oh, pretty bunch of different little colors when in a traditional asset allocation, you're maybe you're getting two, 
different colors. And this is a 10-year correlation. And, and what do we know about correlation during times of stress? They merge, right? So this is year-to-date correlation. Everything oh, is highly correlated. Point the only eight thing that's one for investment grade and US ag at 0.68. Yeah, the color contrast there is a really good depiction of the point you're trying to drive there. So yeah, and it's funny, the only thing in this that's non that's somewhat non-correlated is EM stocks, and that's because they've actually gone down a lot more, <laughs> down more. Than, than, than other things. So yeah, yeah, that's that, that's uh, that's a problem. Um, I'll share this one too. This is the normal um matrix, right? So I like to show this because this is what clients tend to see yeah. and feel. But but if you look and say, okay, here's the normal correlation. Maybe zoom matrix. in. Yeah, Just I can zoom in. A click or two. Um, I think will help. Yeah, yeah. perfect. That better? Yeah. yeah so sure. so this is the normal correlation. You have uh, large cap, mid cap, so forth and so on. And a, a, again, this is uh, this is just a year-to-date number. So again, you can see EM is the only one that's kind of highly, um, somewhat non-correlated. Um, what we look at when we do our asset allocations is, um, and I've I've blocked out the name of the categories for proprietary Good. purposes. Um, but you can tell a dramatic difference, right? I mean, not all dark blue, right? 15 different asset classes. And, and again, these asset classes, quote unquote, may be strategies, maybe, you know, they're not just buy and hold asset class. They're, they're, mm. they're, they're a strategy, right? Yeah, they're they're, you're seeing factors like maybe trend or as you say, risk parity. You Correct. bring up risk parity, which is a really interesting point because not only are you having these correlations vary, but it does matter on size, right? So in, in your traditional portfolio where you had, I think it was, um, you know, uh, aggregate bonds and high quality corporate bonds, whilst they are, well, they, they have low correlation, they also have low ambient vol. So whilst you're sitting there with, I don't know, let's just do the traditional 60-40, 40% of your portfolio in bonds that's supposed to be an offset to your equities, the ambient volatility of those bonds is 6 to 8% versus the ambient volatility of equities, which is 15 to 20%. And so the capital allocation is also a bit off from the perspective of, you know, we have this non-correlated asset, but we've significantly under allocated on a risk basis, balance off the risks of the growth shock that might occur in the equity assets. Exactly. And, and it's, it's part of the issue as financial advisors, you know, because you guys do the heavy lifting on, on, on the true money management on deciding which areas to be invested in and, long short and and exposure to this market exposure to that market right the financial advisor has the has the job of finding you deciding to allocate to you and strategies like yours and others you know with our sleeve approach we do that for advisors um but but it gets into uh statement line risk with clients oh, yeah absolutely right? and, and line item risk yeah line item risk yep yep kind of like headline risk but line item risk exactly yeah. and and that's 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 a risk to advisors. That's a worry of advisors, right? It's, and I've actually had advisors say to me, Brad, we love the idea of alternatives, but if, if they go down, then, you know, how do we stay in that? And it's like, well, it is, I would tell my clients, if everything is going up at the same time, 
it means everything goes down at the same time. It's as simple as that. You explain it to that. And I've heard other presenters at conferences say, you know, diversification means always having to say you're sorry. And if you're not apologizing for something in the portfolio, then you're not really diversified. Um, or I, diversification I, works even when you don't want it to, right? The, the, this idea yeah. that a truly well-diversified uh, allocation of towards different strategies, like a portfolio that's made up of all these different strategies, if it's truly well-diversified, as much as you don't want it to have, it's always going to have a few uh, strategies that are down on any relevant time frame, and, and that can be really hard for, for any advisor or client to look at their statement and just say, you know what, why don't we just fire these guys that are down, right? They, it's kind of like a, a this visceral human nature thing that you need to con continuously push against through education and through, I guess, some degree yeah. of handholding. I'm a big analogy guy. I've, I've found analogies through my career have, have, have helped me stay motivated and help me explain things. And, and I think of it as um, uh, a cookie recipe. You know, I love cookies, right? It's, it's the holidays. Who doesn't love a good gingerbread cookie this time of year, right? Um, so so I would, I would talk, to, talk to clients, talk to advisors about what's more important. Is it more important to look at the ingredients in the cookies or is it the cookie? If the cookie tastes good, if the cookie is what you want it to be, that's what's important. There, there's, there's an ingredient in cookie that cookies that a lot of people don't realize. That ingredient sugar. is salt. Sugar, <laughs> but salt. Everyone knows Forget the sugar, sugar content. Just Yeah, yeah. Hopefully we don't. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, we, a little we bit of salt makes the sugar taste so much better, though, right? You need salt. You need salt in the cookie recipe. Otherwise, the cookie doesn't taste good. Right. So but if you just looked at the salt by itself and you tasted the salt, sometimes it doesn't taste good. Right. So it's changing the narrative with with investors to say, let's focus on the cookie. Let's focus on the total portfolio. Right. My job as your financial advisor is to pick the ingredients. Right. I go to the store and I pick the best ingredients I can find. And then I pick the best recipe. Right. So so sometimes my team and I've got a great team, they they, they don't like the, the cookie analogy because I beat it to death sometimes. But I just think it works really well. And, you know, when, when you're when you're building an asset allocation, it is a recipe. Right. It's the advisor's job is to go to the store, buy the ingredients, find the best ones, the best category and then build the best recipe. Right. Um, we would argue that don't just stop with one type of cookie. Because again, we like cookies. So that's again where most advisors um, limit themselves and they'll only do a 60-40 cookie, right? They'll only do the buy and hold. They won't do a tactical cookie. They won't do an alternative cookie, a risk parity cookie, a trend following cookie, right? You know, they won't get a basket of, of different cookies. They'll just be all, all chocolate chip cookies. And chocolate chip cookies are good, don't get me wrong, but but variety helps, right? So so I think that. That, that analogy, that, that, that paraphrasing for advisors can help them with, with the, the line risk, statement line risk, yeah. because at the end of the day, that's what matters is the cookie. Yeah. The, com the, com the compounding factor there is the fact that over the last 10 years prior to December 31st, 2021, really hasn't, it's the diversification has been an albatross. And uh, there's been significant changes in the regime that tend to look like or lead to very different relationships structurally between asset prices, between the asset classes, where bonds have been a very good offset 
prior to 2021 against shocks and have formed with this very strong negative correlation. That's unusual, actually. You know, the, the 1982 to 2021 period where bonds have this all that this structural negative correlation to stocks is the unusual part, but we've got a whole cohort of advisors who are advising on portfolios who may not have experienced any other type of environment. And now alternatives come in and are popular again. Last time that was 1970s when you had to incorporate other asset classes like commodities or trend following in order to survive. So it's going to be interesting how adoption goes and how long we have to suffer through the period of, of difference in regime before lights go on for folks. And, and, and that's, again, why we have the multidimensional, where we, we mm. would argue, don't pick one type of cookie, right? Don't pick just, you know, yeah. risk parity, right? Don't just, don't just pick trend following, right? Have different sleeves, different approaches, so that if, if look, if, if Jerome Powell wakes up one day, all of a sudden says, you know, yeah, I was wrong. Let's, we're going to cut rates 200 basis points. The bond market's going to go bananas, right? I mean, and, and, you know, do you get out of your bond funds into alternatives now? I don't know. You know, I, again, I can't predict the future. You know, we hold bonds, we hold alternatives to bonds and we hold, hold, and we hold tactical bond managers that can go back into bonds or out of bonds based on what they're seeing. Cause again, I don't, I don't necessarily think financial advisors should be making those decisions. They they should educate themselves. They should watch you know this podcast, this YouTube, other ones out there as well, and educate themselves. But but our lane as financial advisors, it's funny. I I, I say financial advisors should be financial advisors, and people say, "What do you mean by that?" That's what do you mean? It's like, well, you know, it means don't be an economist, don't be a prognosticator, don't be you know, a uh, 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 stock analyst, right? I mean, have opinions, certainly. But at the end of the day, your job as a financial advisor is to know the client and and help them meet their goals. And if, if an advisor takes time to analyze things and say, yep, we're going to get out of EM debt, we're going to go into floating rate bonds, and then we're going to go into you know, maybe next month we'll go into T-bills and then we're going to short copper or whatever. It's like, there's no way a financial advisor can do that. No way they can do that. Um, that's why I think picking, you know, managers like yourself, and there's a lot of other good ones too, that, that complement each other, where the heavy lifting of the trading is done by the advisor, that frees up so much time for the financial advisor to 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 grow their business, to meet with their clients, to to know them, to explore these other opportunities and again, create kind of true alpha um, um, overall. Yeah, on for, the financial for the planning side and the state planning and, and uh, uh, those other considerations that the managers aren't looking at at all. And they're, they're only seeing their own sort of niche within the whole portfolio. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about the behavioral considerations of all this. I mean, I, I would imagine there's some selection bias. I mean, the, I, the, the clients that have gravitated towards you throughout the years must share some of your beliefs slash biases, and they they need to embrace kind of the same, at least base hypothesis of, you know, the next several years are, are going to be different, or, or maybe they were even earlier with you on this. So they, they they must have been embracing the same kind of views and values that you were. So do you deal with the advisors alone? And, and 
their clients to some degree? Do you, do you meet with some of these clients in some of the conferences? How, how do you think of those behavioral considerations? Yeah. So again, this is where I'm a little, our firm is very unique in the, um, in what we do, right? And even what we do, some, there's a term called an OCIO, an outsourced chief investment officer. You could label us as that. You could label us as, um, as an asset allocator um, for, um, for financial advisors. Um, we're unique in that realm of, of OCIOs in the sense that we were created by financial advisors for financial advisors, right? We've been, everyone on my team has, has been a financial advisor, you know, I, I've, I have the longest history of, you know, having individual clients for 20 years and then consulting advisors for five additional years. So we've sat across the table from a client and, you know, sometimes I hear OCIOs say things and I, and I cringe. It's like, you know, if I was a retail client, I would run out the door, you know, based on what I'm hearing. And, and it may be, you know, from a managing money from a pension company standpoint, completely okay to say that. But managing money for a retail investor is much different than managing money for an institutional pension company that has an endowment that's planning to last 500 years, right? Most clients aren't going to live 500 years. Um, they don't want to. Um, so it, it, it is a very important part of it, um, which is why we, again, try to build our portfolios to be smoother, to avoid the stressful times, not just walk you through the stressful times. Um, advisors now are hungry for this because they, you know, this last year has been one of the worst starts or worst returns for a 60-40 portfolio in, in the history. Um, and is it going to continue? Is it not? And I don't know. We don't, we don't predict the future. Um, but the psychological component, it's, it's funny. People, people will spend all their time trying to pick the best fund, right? You know, and, and again, that's kind of how I started. It's what's the best large cap growth fund, the best large cap value fund, the best mid cap fund, and, and then they buy them. But the real returns are not made when you buy an investment. They're made when you sell the investment, right? And, and that is the emotional side. So, so mitigating that risk is probably one of our number one most important things, right? And, and investors, investors go through cycles, right? Again, I started in the late 90s and it was 20% is, is not enough return. I want more, right? We don't have that type of environment right now, you know? Um, people want, you know, the, the old adage is the return of their money, not return on their money during, during times like now. So, um, yeah, psychology is, 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 is crucial. And that's where, again, advisors, good advisors spend time with their clients, getting to know them, listening to them, truly understanding their risk tolerance. Um, and it changes over time, um, with, with clients. So, you know, it's, uh. Yeah, it is probably one of the most important things. And it's, it's, I think so, one so thing that it answers a couple of questions that come to my mind. One is um, when folks are looking at these types of asset classes, whether it's our products or others, they tend to feel like, um, you know, trend as an example, just generally has a, has had a really good start to the year. And the question is, have I missed it? And how much should I allocate to it? So in my mind, it's more of, as you've already articulated, this is a strategic allocation. And a strategic allocation, if you didn't have one, okay, well, that, you know, we can't go back in time. 
but now we have to establish one. So how should we establish that strategic allocation? Do we do it all at once? Do we do it over several quarters, several months? All of which is fine. None of it really matters, to be fair. Just get it to a place where current portfolio is not optimal given circumstances. Here's new optimality. And there's a journey there. It can be a day. It can be a year. But you're going to journey to what you want in the end or start with the end in mind, if you will. So thinking about it from a strategic perspective, I think that's where people should be thinking. The regime has shifted. Inflation volatility is upon us. If you go back through history and study what inflation volatility means to asset classes, it doesn't matter whether inflation is sustained or not. It's the volatility around the mean that's the real meaningful factor. And that, I don't see that abating. So it can fall a lot, it can rise a lot, but these have implications and provide opportunities for active asset management. So now we've got this strategic gap. We fill that strategic gap. Maybe, Brad, you can enlighten us on what does the what does this thing look like? Like what's the what's the strategic endpoint aiming chart? Like where do you so you kind of do a third, a third, a third? Is that generally where you start, or does it get a little bit more deep than that? Or are there areas that you've decided not to include that others do like give us a little bit of insight. I, we don't yeah. want certainly the secret sauce. Sure. But give sure. us the edges of the secret sauce where we're like, Oh, we're dying to learn more, but he didn't tell us and he didn't do it on purpose because he doesn't give his services away for free. So. Sure. sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so our, and, and we've done a lot of testing, right. And you have to have enough different stuff to matter, right? You put 5% on alternatives, it doesn't matter, right? If, if it calls for, you know, quarter cup of, well, I wouldn't call for a quarter cup of salt, but you know what I mean? You got to put enough in there for it to, for it to yeah. matter. So our, our overall philosophy is a 40, 30, 30, where we put 40% in buy and hold. Uh, we put 30% in tactical, and then we put 30% in alternatives. And then within those sleeves, there's components. There's a multi-asset component. There's an equity component or focus, call it equity focused, and then and then bond or income focused, right? So, so we have a conservative multidimensional model. We have an aggressive multidimensional model, right? So, so there are the different spectrums of risk within there, and and we have a, a, a number of other portfolios. Some are tax sensitive, some are loss mitigation, ultra conservative, ultra aggressive, right? You know, we we customize portfolios as well, but kind of our core philosophy is that 40, 30, 30. And uh, with inside there, again, I, so like the tactile kind of giving you a little bit already that we look for quant fundamental and technical analysis managers in there. When we when we pick funds in, in, in categories, it's a challenge because the industry doesn't think like we do. The industry doesn't talk like we do. There's no Morningstar screen for multi-asset alternative. There's no screen for income-oriented alternatives, right? Um, so, so we have to do a lot of that ourselves, um, and, and categorize and label things, uh, ourselves. But when we, so when we do that, yeah, we, we don't build asset allocations with 50 different funds in them. It's too much for advisors, right? Yeah. Even when we have 15, sometimes that may be too many, too many fund categories in there for smaller accounts. So we have some more, con, you know, consolidated, concise accounts in there. So, um, we try to pick strategies that are different. So on the on the um, uh, b- uh, bond fund alternatives, right, which have done very well this year. So so there's three there's three strategies we look at. We look at a merger arb, we look at convertible arb, and we look at a dividend capture strategy. There's a lot of other 
income alternative type arbitrage or otherwise type strategies out there. Um, those are the three that we look at. There's logic behind all three of them being there. Um, it's, it's funny. One of the things I emphasize um, when, when I talk to advisors is remind them on what asset allocation actually is supposed to do and, and what really won the Nobel Prize. And everybody gets it wrong. Everybody says, oh, you diversify your assets. No, it's, it's, it's not diversify your assets. Harry Markowitz is very well known for asset allocation. But what, what he actually emphasized was diversify your risks, right? Not your assets, your risks. So, so what's the risk to the bond market? Well, you have default, you have interest rate risk, right? What's, what's, the, what's the risk to a merger ARB fund? Well, it's, not, it's none of those two risks, right? It's, it's merger risk, right? Does Elon buy Twitter or not? That's the risk, right? If he does, the deal goes through, you make money. If he doesn't, you don't, right? And that's a good example because everybody knows about Elon and Twitter, but it's a bad example because most merger ARB funds wouldn't have touched that with a 10-foot pole because of, because of Elon risk, right? Um, well, it's and- that idiosyncratic risk. You're trying to harvest this sort of normalcy and now you inject, you know, political vigor and the randomness of, of Elon, that is entirely idiosyncratic and can't be taken many times, right? If it's, I guess, by definition, if something's idiosyncratic, you can't take that bet a thousand times. You just can't find similar situations that accrue. So you don't know what your edge is. And so you just say, no, thank you. Yeah. And, and again, we pick managers that have the experience to look at those deals and decide what to go in and not. Yeah, but, but we look for logical reasons, right? Is there a logical yeah. pair between your fund, which is quant versus you know a technical analysis fund, right? There is yeah. because there's going to be different signals between the two. Different so asset include, classes in, in, included, right? Yeah, so yeah structural universe. reasons. To be structural reasons. So, so yeah, so we build in the structural reasons for the different funds with inside mm-hmm. the allocation. So again, that there is a logical reason to, yeah. to, to have them. And so, we do look at past performance. Of course. Um, um, but, but we look at, so like we break our analysis of funds down to qualitative and quantitative. So qualitatively, we look at what we call the three Ps, the, the people, the process, and the purpose. Right. Who, who, who are the managers? What's their philosophy? What's their background? Do they make sense? Right. And as silly as it sounds, I've listened to many managers and said, nope, um, and moved on. Right. And, and we passed that screen. Yes. <laughs> very much so. Um, very much. So. so we look at the people. We also look at are the people investing in, in, in their own stuff. Right. So go back to my cookie analogy. If I make a bunch of cookies and I don't eat my cookies, why would you want to eat? You know, if the chef isn't eating their cooking, you shouldn't eat their cooking. So we look for manager ownership of the strategy. Then we look for the the, the process. Is it a detailed process? Is it is it logical? Is it repeatable? Um, and then what's the purpose of the fund, right? Don't if the purpose is loss mitigation, we're not going to judge it against the S and P five hundred, right? We're going to judge it against you know more appropriate benchmark. And and then after qualitatively, then we look at the quantitative, which is arguably the easier part, right? That's looking at all the statistics and, but we go a fair amount deeper than probably most in the sense that um, we don't just look at point in time analysis, point in time returns. What's his three-year return, five-year return, 10-year return? You know, we, we look at rolling returns um, and we also look at rolling um, sharp ratio, rolling Sortino ratio. Um, you know, it, and it's funny, I have a conversation with advisors sometimes and, 
you know, we say, I ask them like, who, who, you know, do you look at standard deviation? Right. And you don't have this conversation with clients, but advisors like, do you look at standard deviation? Yep. You look at it as a measure of risk. Yep. Don't. Standard deviation is not really a measure of risk. It's, it's a measure of deviation. And in 25 years of financial services experience, I never met a single investor that did not want deviation on the upside. Everybody wants deviation on the right. upside. So, so if you avoid so funds- So you prefer like high, Sorrentino or Ulcer? What, yeah. So we look at Sorrentino ratio. To me, Sorrentino right. ratio is, is an amazing statistic that, that, that we look at and, and we track. One of, one of our team members uh, has a hedge fund experience, a global macro hedge fund, and um, uh, he, he shined the light on Sorrentino ratio with, with, with me um, some time ago. And it's not a statistic a lot of financial advisors really look at. It really is much more of an alt hedge fund statistic, but but advisors should look at it much more. Yeah, yeah I think it reflects the, the actual behavioral bias of the of the client. So now that I've said that, I'm going to let you explain the Sortino ratio because yeah, so, I'm not so, explaining it. Yeah, so 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 we first have to understand the difference between standard deviation and and uh, loss standard deviation, right? So. Standard deviation is broken up between your gain deviation and your loss deviation. Clients want the gain deviation. They just want a smaller loss deviation. So when we look at funds and we compare funds and decide what to look at, we look at loss deviation relative to benchmarks, relative to other funds. Um, And then we look at, so a lot of advisors are familiar with sharp ratio. Sharp ratio is basically return divided by standard deviation really. Technically, it's return minus risk-free return divided by standard deviation. But we're going to have to start incorporating that too now because that was zero for a while. Now it's like real. True. So we're going to have to actually it something. there from now on. Yeah. True, true. But yeah, well, you're in, when in your future space, it's all excess returns, right? But uh, anyway, carry on, Brett. Yeah. And our, our, our tagline at, at, at our firm, Dynamic Alpha Solutions, is, is we like to simplify the complexity. Right. We simplify the complexity for advisors, for clients. It's something that I always did with my clients, tried to keep the financial jargon out. Um, so return divided by risk. That's the way I describe um, sharp ratio. Right. You want a higher number on the numerator and a smaller number on the on the denominator. Right. And then yeah. you get a bigger number and you want to compare, you know, sharp ratios of similar asset categories to each other. So Sortino is basically the same thing. It's the return divided by the loss standard deviation, right? The loss deviation. So, so it's the same thing. You want a smaller loss deviation and you want a higher return minus risk-free rate of return, right? So, because that's what matters more, you know? And it's, it's funny, it's, it's, we have our own customized fact sheets that we create on funds. And if any advisor watching wants, wants that, they can certainly reach out to us and I'll give my contact info at the end. But, but, um, we have a whole list of all the statistics, right? The alpha, beta, correlations, all that stuff. And there, and, and we actually have a blog on our website called the ABCs, the alpha, beta correlation of, of financial statistics, where we kind of go through those in plain English to say what's really most important. And we define Sortino ratio. But, but of all those statistics on our list, there's really only one that the client cares about and really feels. A client doesn't feel a Sortino ratio. A client can't feel, you know, the the average return, right? They, they can't really feel averages, right? I think Mark Twain said it best, averages don't mean anything. If they did, you'd put one foot in a bucket of boiling water and another foot in a bucket of ice water and you'd be okay, right? It, it doesn't work that way. So the one statistic we report 
but it's probably the most important from an advisor, uh, a client standpoint is worst monthly return or worst drawdown, right? You know, a worst monthly return is what client actually feels. And if we're comparing two strategies or we're comparing your strategy to a, to a balanced, a 60-40 benchmark, right? And we see that the, the worst monthly return from your strategy is dramatically less than the 60-40 benchmark, that's a win in our category, right? Because that's right. what a client's going to feel. And it's in, interesting on a monthly basis is when they're going to feel it, right? When they get their monthly statement. And so yes. it's not monthly in the middle of the month. It's monthly at the end of the month when print statements will be printed and sent to clients and they will have some sort of reaction. It's Absolutely. A, yeah. And there's still a lot of clients that get monthly statements. Uh, a lot of clients oh, yeah. still get monthly statements or they log online. And you're right. It's, it's end of the month. You know, you want the market to go up and for those statements and that worst monthly drawdown, it, it's, it's an important category we look at in judging funds and saying, is this going to be a good fund? Because that gets back to Richard, your previous question on investor psychology, right? And and building the portfolio to start with, with the mindset of smoothing out the returns is is crucial. And and looking for that worst monthly return is is one of the ways, um uh, one of the ways that we do that. So Interesting. I, I've run a. I, I've had to run a couple of analyses, or more than a couple now, both for the mutual fund in the U.S. and the ETF that we manage in Canada. When asked, you know, how would you pair this strategy with other alternative strategies uh, for our bucket? Like, what complements well? And you're talking a little bit about sort of the the bond, the the merger arb, the stat arb, and then the. Uh, dividend uh, capture yeah. strategy. So I, I'm wondering, do you look at some of these? I, I ran a couple of analyses, like the rolling correlation between the strategies, because they, they might have a, a, a correlation on a daily uh, frequency. That's one thing, weekly, monthly. So so that can vary, but also their rolling correlation against, say, U.S. equities or, or, or the equity benchmark for their market, which will give you a little bit of a sense of how much beta they'll carry at any given point in time, whether it's conditional or not. And another component of this is uh, the coincidental drawdown. So do these strategies tend to be correlated or not? So do their drawdowns coincide? These are some of the, the things that one of our uh, analyzer tools here allows us to do. I'm wondering if you ever looked at any of those stats. Yeah, so we do look a lot at rolling. So we look at a rolling everything, right? So again, it's it's we look at rolling rolling returns, correlation, sharp ratios, certina ratios to to look for consistency, right? We don't want one hit wonders. Uh, we want consistency with, with the funds that we use, but, but even rolling correlation can be, can be misleading because there could be periods of time where correlation is high. And, and sometimes you want that correlation to be high when, when, when beta is in favor, right? When, when stuff is going up, 100%. you want high correlation, right? So, That's right. so what we try to identify and, and there's no sc screen on this is, is we try to identify causation versus uh, correlation, right? Or non-correlation, right? We say, is there a causation for the non-correlation, right? And we can look at a strategy and say, yep, you guys are quant, risk parity, trend following, whatever. It's going to be correlated sometimes with the technical analysis, fundamental manager, sometimes it won't, but the causation difference is there, right? So again, it's, we try to put logic into it and, and, you know, look, stocks and bonds were non-correlated for a while and now they're super correlated. Right. So correlation is just a statistic. It's a mathematical calculation. We, we try to dive deeper and say what's actually underneath the hood. 
right? What's what's actually powering this strategy to say, yes, it's non-correlated. No, it is correlated, right? And it's funny. There's a, um, a statistic I saw um, uh, at a conference some time ago, and the person put this on the screen, and it, it showed the correlation between che um, uh, cheese consumption in America and death by bed sheets. And it's like 98% correlated. The more cheese Americans make, the more people die in their bed sheets. And I thought, my goodness, <laughs> how do you even die in your bed sheets? But that aside, that's that's like illogical, right? Totally illogical correlation, right? High, highly correlated, but no causation, right? And and we try to find that 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 causation for the non-correlation in in the strategy. So like everything is baked into it. And yeah, we look at the numbers too, but. Um, Numbers can be misleading. Again, it's my my degree is in mathematics and economics, right? And and you know I understand math, but I understand the power of math can really be abused sometimes, right? I mean, again, another you Mark can torture Twain. the numbers to yeah. give you whatever oh, results yeah. you want. So it, it is really about understanding the structural underpinnings of the strategy and why they might correlate with the the beta at times and why why I actually want them to whether it's because they 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 time it well or because their process allows them to get access to beta in the opportune moments when when, when markets are ripping and, yeah absolutely yeah. i mean a tactical a tactical manager that might be using technical analysis you know they if they're in the market now they're going to be highly correlated and you want them to be in the market when the market's going up but you want them to Get out of the market when the market's going down, right? Again, and get that goes back to investor psychology and, and expectations with clients, right? Clients will fill out a risk tolerance questionnaire and say, "Oh yeah," and there's been studies on this, right? And, and a lot of studies. And in bull markets, the number of clients that say they're aggressive is higher than than the number of clients that are, are aggressive in a in a bear market, right? The risk tolerance really shouldn't change, but but you know to label put that label on it with with clients is 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 a challenge, right? And and we've all seen those studies of what the average mutual fund does versus the average investor, right? And and the discrepancy is exponential, um, you know. And again, that's what we try to. We've, try to we've seen we've seen we've seen fund flows for years. Absolutely, they come at the wrong time. Yeah, fund flows can come at the wrong time. That goes back to your point earlier, Mike. Of when is the right time hmm. to to move into it and. We would we would argue there is no perfect time, right? You can't time it perfectly. No. You know? do, do you slowly mitigate into it? You know the you know again, are bonds the right place to be right now? Hard to say. Hard to say. You know, it's, it's we have bonds, we have core bonds in our allocation, but we have other strategies that are not core bonds that have done very well, and we think, and we've we've done the testing on them. Those strategies did well when bonds were doing well. So if we can find a strategy that's non-correlated in the bad times that's that's positively correlated in the good times it has a rolling rolling experience of doing well when or even beating the benchmark in a good time and beating the benchmark in a bad time that rings our bell and kind of meets meets our criteria um fabulous and again we do all that heavy it's, lifting we do all that heavy lifting for the advisors of all the screening the hours of research the the, the mind power give it to advisors in a nice, easily implementable format where they're not having to make the arduous, you know, decisions on saying, okay, let's overweight international, overweight EM, right? It's like, no, buy our, buy these funds, mm -hmm. these allocations, here's the past experience, the future 
you know, is going to be actively managed for you. We'll, we continue to monitor. We continue to look yeah. for changes, right? We look for causation of changes to manager changes to what's going on. How in, often are in, you rebalancing? How often do you, do you think about the, the rebalancing uh, uh, process that are quarterly, annually? And, and to tack on to that question, what would give you pause to perhaps rejig the asset allocation or perhaps remove a, a, a manager? I mean, we, we are coming into a period now where you know a lot of people are describing it as a paradigm shift or turning gets thrown around there as well. Like if we are indeed coming into a drastically different period for financial assets for markets for the economy, how, what process do you have in place or have you given much thought about what would cause you to remove a manager uh, or, or, or change the makeup of these buckets? Great question. Yeah. So, so uh, we rebalance based on a threshold uh, basis. So we're not just fixed every quarter uh, we rebalance, right? I mean, that, that, that can lead to unnecessary work uh, from the advisor as well as, um, uh, you know, more tax ramifications and more cost the advisor and potentially the client. So, so we, we have thresholds where if, if an allocation is, is over a certain percentage from its, its initial planned allocation, we will send out a, a rebalancing uh, recommendation back to the, to the fixed. Uh, we're, we're always scouring that investment universe, as I say, uh, for, for new and better investment op- opportunities out there. And there's always new funds, new ETFs, new indexes that are coming out that, that are intriguing to us, new, new, new products that are being launched that are intriguing to us. And, and we identify them as they come and we say, where would this fit within our list? Would this fit better than a, a current allocation? Or, or will this fit as a secondary choice um, and give advisors some choices on, on, on what they would want to do? If a portfolio manager would leave a fund, um, that's certainly a red flag for us. If the head manager or managers leave, um, then, then we would examine the fund to say, okay, who, why? Who's, who are the new people coming in? How different is the strategy going to be? Um, again, we look for the causation for wanting you know, a bad month, a bad quarter. No, you know, we, we look for if, if performance was bad, we would look at historical performance and say, is this within the realm of past experience? And if it's within the past standard deviations of a loss, that's okay. It's performing as expected. And we're not going to just sell out of it. And, you know, again, it, it diversification means always having to say you're sorry, but that's okay. You know, again, it remind our clients that if everything goes up at the same time, it means it all goes down at the same time. And we want to have some things that are non, non-correlated, right? So it's, again, we simplify complexity with clients. We don't talk non-correlation and causation and sharp sortinos and, you know, all this other stuff. It's as simple as, huh, that's my presentation with clients, right? <laughs> I mean, I had cl- individual clients It's because yeah. they understand it, right? It's, it's, I always felt that if, if, and maybe it's because it was the, the math teacher schooling inside me where I did a lot of tutoring in college to, 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 to help fellow students learn statistics and other math. And it's like, you know, having to explain a concept four different ways before someone would understand it. It's like, you have to really simplify it. And clients should understand what they're getting into. They should understand the strategies, right? They don't have to know how the engine works to go in there and tinker with the engine themselves, but they should have the basic understanding of it so that if they do, they're more likely to stick with it when times get a little problematic, right? It's, it's 
you know, personally, I've been a long-term investor in Tesla, right? I, I own Tesla back in 2011. I walked into a Tesla store at the Oak Brook shopping mall and like, this is a pretty cool concept. It's a skateboard. It's their car in the shopping mall. What is this thing? And, and got to learn about the company and their stores were designed by the same guy, George Blankenship, that designed the Apple stores. Um, so it's very hands-on. It's like, this is a cool company. I'm going to buy a little bit of stock. And then I, I bought the car. And, you know, I was one of the first Tesla owners back in, in 2012. And, but because I believe in the company, right, I've been able to ride a lot of waves with, with Tesla and it sold some along the way. And, and, you know, but, but if you believe in the strategy, you're more likely to ride through those dips, right? So with me, it's the Elon Musk dips, right? It's, it's the going public at, at 420 dip. It's the, you know, the Joe Rogan dip. It's you name it, right? It's, it's been a Twitter dip and, you know, it, oh, it's and, too good. Yeah. And, and, well, and again, it's, it's funny an, you say that. I remember when Amazon was the craze last year, um, three ninety percent drops in, you know, not quite nine. There's a couple nineties. There's a couple that are 80, but in order to have held this Amazon, you know, stock when it was issued in 98 to last year. I mean, you went through three, basically 90% declines in the stock along the way. You got to be a believer in something to make it through a 90% decline. You, you do. And, and certainly our portfolios aren't designed for that type of volatility. No, but, no, no. But, but they, individual have to, they stock still have to. Tribalism yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's why I've held the Tesla shares as long as yep. I have. Right. And yep. it, I've owned Apple for a long time. But most of my money are in, in, in funds like yours and other funds that, yeah. that you know, are. Yeah, that are being actively managed and fit within the multidimensional viewpoint. And but but with inside there, there will be funds that underperform certain years. And that's OK. You know, the, 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 that's part of the expectation of, of investing in it. So I expected nothing it. less, Brad, that you would eat your own cookies. So yes, I do. <laughs> I do eat my own cookies. I always oh, did. And, bump. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Richard. I don't know. He's here all week, folks. Yeah. That was yeah. a good one. That was a good one. So what do you think, guys? Should we wrap it up here or uh, do you want to? Any questions that we didn't ask you, Brett, that you think are are, are relevant as we draw uh, to a close? And I don't think so. I mean, I think we, we covered a bunch of stuff. Um, we covered a bunch of slides. We can always save some slides for the next time we, we chat if, if you want to chat again. Um, of course. But uh, no, it's been it's been a pleasure. And it's been an honor. Likewise, right? yeah. And I've, I've watched That's you guys great. for some time now and uh, you guys do great work and uh, yeah. yeah. Welcome. Really welcome. And uh, it will give us, give everybody your digits. And I, I think you mentioned the company name, but the name, Twitter, LinkedIn or whatever, however you guys communicate, make sure we get it out there. Yeah, and if, if, away. If, if, yeah, if I can share this, the, 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 the screen and my, my contact info is on there. Um, uh, you can Perfect. certainly email me at brad at dynamicalphasolutions.com. My Twitter handle is dynamicalphasol uh, as, uh, um, solution. And uh, my LinkedIn, I'm more active on LinkedIn than Twitter. Uh, we have a few websites, dynamicalphasolutions.com. You can read our blogs. We also have Rethink Asset Allocation, where we have a nice big picture of a cookie on it, <laughs> uh, which again probably doesn't surprise you. Um, the, the, the other thing that I would mention is um, especially this time of year, if I can give it a little plug to uh, charity, 
charity work is in addition to running this firm, I also head up a charity nonprofit called the Alliance Foundation, uh, where we help people with uh, food, shelter and emotional support, which is kind of why you see our logo uh, showing a house and apple and um, uh, and the uh, the dog. Uh, puppy? Think, uh, yeah. Yep. Little puppies. Right. Because we think animals can be amazing emotional support uh, animals and, and um, uh, support. You haven't met my dog, so, but yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sometimes my dog needs his own emotional Indoors. support uh, uh, person as well. But, uh, um, you know, it, there's a lot of blessed people that that, that are watching this. And it, no matter what organization you give to, I think it's always give to, give, good to give to some organization this time of year. There's also an amazing program through Amazon that I find a lot of people are not familiar with. It's called the uh, Smile.Amazon. So if you shop at Amazon, it's much better to shop at Smile.Amazon.com. It's the same Amazon, same prices, same prime, same everything, except Amazon will donate half a percent of whatever you spend um, to your charity of choosing. If you want to choose our charity, you, you can click right on that, or you can't click on the link, but you can go to that, that, that site there, or you can find your own local uh, organization. In beauty is it doesn't cost you anything. If you're shopping on Amazon anyways, um, it's, 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 it's a great way to, uh, to help those less fortunate um, charity, chari charity work and, um, philanthropic planning is something I've done for many times as financial advisors. It was one of the, one of the ways that I connected with clients was talking about legacy planning. And I would encourage financial advisors, you know, if it, again, that's kind of the beauty of what we do is we free up time for the financial advisor to, for them to do more work with their client. And I think having conversations with their clients on what are their philanthropic goals, you know, do they have organizations that they're close to? And you can learn so much about an individual by learning about what what organizations they're they're close to, right? Whether it's the animal shelter, the autism school, the 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 whatever, and to get to know your client, and then to build in strategies that can help them with taxes and charitable giving and estate planning, and you know, whether it's donor advised funds or CRUTs or you know, a few years ago, I did something called a, uh, a flip nimcrut with a spigot. And uh, we could we could, uh, we could probably have a... Uh, Bless you. Uh, yeah, we could probably have a webinar just on a flip nimcrut with a spigot. Um, uh, but it's an awesome planning vehicle, honestly. I did it for myself and it, it, it can work for a lot, of, a lot of clients. And again, I'm not a lawyer, consult your legal advisor, all that fun stuff. But... Uh, um, you know, there's so much good work financial advisors do. It's, it's such a noble, wonderful profession. And uh, um, yeah, our, our goal is to help advisors be better advisors, to help them help their clients. So, Fantastic. Love it. Yeah, it's been thank great, you again Brad. for joining us, Brad. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Thanks everyone yeah, for watching. You. And uh, are we on next weekend? Yeah, well, yeah. you guys on, I'm off. But uh, enjoy the weekend, everyone. Be well. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again. And see you next time.
Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.